Chapter Seventeen of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Gray. Chapter Seventeen. Wrangle's Race Run. The plan eventually decided upon by the lovers was for Venters to go to the village, secure a horse in some kind of a disguise for Bess, or at least less striking apparel than her present garb, and to return post-haste to the valley. Meanwhile she would add to their store of gold. Then they would strike the long and perilous trail to ride out of Utah. In the event of his inability to fetch back a horse for her, they intended to make the giant sorrel carry double. The gold, a little food, saddle blankets, and Venter's guns were to compose the light outfit with which they would make the start. "'I love this beautiful place,' said Bess. "'It's hard to think of leaving it.' "'Hard? Well, I should think so,' replied Venters. "'Maybe in years—' But he did not complete in words his thought that might be possible to return after many years of absence and change.' Once again Bess bade Venters farewell under the shadow of balancing rock, and this time it was with whispered hope and tenderness and passionate trust. Long after he had left her, all down through the outlet to the pass, the clinging clasp of her arms, the sweetness of her lips, and the sense of a new and exquisite birth of character in her remained hauntingly and thrillingly in his mind. The girl who had sadly called herself nameless and nothing had been marvelously transformed in the moment of his avowal of love. It was something to think over, something to warm his heart, but for the present it had absolutely to be forgotten so that all his mind could be addressed to the trip so fraught with danger. He carried only his rifle, revolver, and a small quantity of bread and meat, and thus lightly burdened he made swift progress down the slope and out into the valley. Darkness was coming on, and he welcomed it. Stars were blinking when he reached his old hiding-place in the split of canyon wall, and by their aid he slipped through the dense thickets to the grassy enclosure. Wrangle stood in the center of it with his head up, and he appeared black and of gigantic proportions in the dim light. Venters whistled softly, began a slow approach, and then called. The horse snorted, and plunging away with dull, heavy sound of hoofs, he disappeared in the gloom. "'Wilder than ever,' muttered Venters. He followed the sorrel into the narrowing split between the walls, and presently had to desist because he could not see a foot in advance. As he went back toward the open, Wrangle jumped out of an ebony shadow of cliff, and like a thunderbolt shot huge and black past him down into the starlit glade. Deciding that all attempts to catch Wrangle at night would be useless, Venters repaired to the shelving rock where he had hidden saddle and blanket, and there went to sleep. The first peep of day found him stirring, and as soon as it was light enough to distinguish objects, he took his lasso off his saddle and went out to rope the sorrel. He espied Wrangle at the lower end of the cove and approached him in a perfectly natural manner. When he got near enough, Wrangle evidently recognized him, but was too wild to stand. He ran up the glade and on into the narrow lane between the walls. This favored Venter's speedy capture of the horse, so, coiling his noose ready to throw, he hurried on. Wrangle let Venter's get to within a hundred feet, and then he broke. But as he plunged by, rapidly getting into his stride, Venter's made a perfect throw with the rope. He had time to brace himself for the shock. Nevertheless, Wrangle threw him and dragged him several yards before halting. 
"'You wild devil!' said Venters, as he slowly pulled Wrangle up. "'Don't you know me?' "'Come now, old fellow. So, so.' Wrangle yielded to the lasso and then to Venters' strong hand. He was as straggly and wild-looking as a horse left to roam free in the sage. He dropped his long ears and stood readily to be saddled and bridled. But he was exceedingly sensitive and quivered at every touch and sound. Venters led him to the thicket, and, bending the close saplings to let him squeeze through, at length reached the open. Sharp survey in each direction assured him of the usual lonely nature of the canyon. Then he was in the saddle, riding south. Wrangle's long, swinging canter was a wonderful ground-gainer. His stride was almost twice that of an ordinary horse, and his endurance was equally remarkable. Venters pulled him in occasionally, and walked him up the stretches of rising ground and along the soft washes. Wrangle had never yet shown any indication of distress while Venters rode him. Nevertheless, there was now reason to save the horse. Therefore, Venters did not resort to the hurry that had characterized his former trip, he camped at the last water in the pass. What distance that was to Cottonwoods he did not know. He calculated, however, that it was in the neighborhood of fifty miles. Early in the morning he proceeded on his way, and about the middle of the forenoon reached the constricted gap that marked the southerly end of the pass, and through which led the trail up to the sage level. He spied out Lassiter's tracks in the dust, but no others and, dismounting, he straightened out Wrangle's bridle and began to lead him up the trail. The short climb, more severe on beast than on man, necessitated a rest on the level above, and during this he scanned the wide purple reaches of slope. Wrangle whistled his pleasure at the smell of the sage. Remounting, Venters headed up the white trail with the fragrant wind in his face. He had proceeded for perhaps a couple of miles, when Wrangle stopped with a suddenness that threw Venters heavily against the pommel. "'What's wrong, old boy?' called Venters, looking down for a loose shoe or a snake, or a foot lamed by a picked-up stone. Unrewarded, he raised himself from his scrutiny. Wrangle stood stiff head high, with his long ears erect. Thus guided, Venters swiftly gazed ahead to make out a dust-clouded dark group of horsemen riding down the slope. If they had seen him, it apparently made no difference in their speed or direction. "'Wonder who they are?' exclaimed Venters. He was not disposed to run. His cool mood tightened under grip of excitement as he reflected that, whoever the approaching riders were, they could not be friends. He slipped out of the saddle and led Wrangle behind the tallest sagebrush. It might serve to conceal them until the riders were close enough for him to see who they were. After that he would be indifferent to how soon they discovered him. After looking to his rifle and ascertaining that it was in working order, he watched, and as he watched, slowly the force of a bitter fierceness, long dormant, gathered ready to flame into life. If those riders were not rustlers, he had forgotten how rustlers looked and rode. On they came, a small group, so compact and dark that he could not tell their number. How unusual that their horses did not see wrangle! But such failure, Venters decided, was owing to the speed with which they were traveling. They moved at a swift canter, affected more by rustlers than by riders. Venters grew concerned over the possibility that these horsemen would actually ride down on him before he had a chance to tell what to expect. When they were within three hundred yards, he deliberately led Wrangle out into the trail. Then he heard shouts and the hard scrape of sliding hoofs, 
and saw horses rear and plunge back with upflung heads and flying manes. Several little white puffs of smoke appeared sharply against the black background of riders and horses, and shots rang out. Bullets struck far in front of venters and whipped up the dust, and then hummed low into the sage. The range was great for revolvers, but whether the shots were meant to kill or merely to check advance, they were enough to fire that waiting ferocity in venters. Slipping his arm through the bridle so that Wrangle could not get away, Venters lifted his rifle and pulled the trigger twice. He saw the first horseman lean sideways and fall. He saw another lurch in his saddle and heard a cry of pain. Then Wrangle, plunging in fright, lifted Venters and nearly threw him. He jerked the horse down with a powerful hand and leaped into the saddle. Wrangle plunged again, dragging his bridle that Venters had not had time to throw in place. Bending over with a swift movement, he secured it and dropped the loop over the pommel. Then, with grinding teeth, he looked to see what the issue would be. The band had scattered so as not to afford such a broad mark for bullets. The riders faced Venters, some with red-belching guns. He heard a sharper report, and just as Wrangle plunged again, he caught the whim of a leaden missile that would have hit him but for Wrangle's sudden jump. A swift, hot wave, turning cold, passed over Venters. Deliberately he picked out the one rider with a carbine and killed him. Wrangle snorted shrilly and bolted into the sage. Venters let him run a few rods, then, with iron arm, checked him. Five riders, surely rustlers, were left. One leaped out of the saddle to secure his fallen comrade's carbine. A shot from Venters, which missed the man but sent the dust flying over him, made him run back to his horse. Then they separated. The crippled rider went one way, the one frustrated in his attempt to get the carbine rode another. Venters thought he made out a third rider, carrying a strange-appearing bundle and disappearing in the sage. But in the rapidity of action and vision he could not discern what it was. Two riders with three horses swung out to the right. Afraid of the long rifle, a burdensome weapon seldom carried by rustlers or riders, they had been put to rout. Suddenly Venters discovered that one of the two men last noted was riding Jane Witherstein's horse Bells, the beautiful bay racer she had given to Lassiter. Venters uttered a savage outcry. Then the small, wiry, frog-like shape of the second rider, and the ease and grace of his seat in the saddle, things so strikingly incongruous, grew more and more familiar in Venters' sight. "'Jerry Card!' cried Venters. It was indeed Tull's right-hand man. Such a white-hot wrath inflamed Venters that he fought himself to see with clearer gaze. "'It's Jerry Card!' he exclaimed instantly. "'And he's riding Black Star and leading Knight!' The long, kindling, stormy fire in Venter's heart burst into flames. He spurred Wrangle, and as the horse lengthened his stride, Venter slipped cartridges into the magazine of his rifle, till it was once again full. Card and his companion were now half a mile or more in advance, riding easily down the slope. Venter's marked the smooth gate, and understood it when Wrangle galloped out of the sage into the broad cattle trail down which Venter's had once tracked Jane Witherstein's red herd. This hard-packed trail, from years of use, was as clean and smooth as a road. Venter saw Jerry Card look back over his shoulder. The other rider did likewise. Then the three racers lengthened their stride to the point where the swinging canter was ready to break into a gallop. "'Wrangle, the race is on,' said Venters grimly. 
We'll canter with them, and gallop with them, and run with them. We'll let them set the pace. Venters knew he bestrode the strongest, swiftest, most tireless horse ever ridden by any rider across the Utah uplands. Recalling Jane Witherstein's devoted assurance that Knight could run neck and neck with Wrangle, and Black Star could show his heels to him, Venters wished that Jane were there to see the race to recover her blacks, and in the unqualified superiority of the giant sorrel. Then Venters found himself thankful that she was absent, for he meant that race to end in Jerry Card's death. The first flush, the raging of Venters' wrath, passed, to leave him in sullen, almost cold possession of his will. It was a deadly mood, utterly foreign to his nature, engendered, fostered, and released by the wild passions of wild men in a wild country. The strength in him then, the thing rife in him that was not hate, but something as remorseless, might have been the fiery fruition of a whole lifetime of vengeful quest. Nothing could have stopped him. Venters thought out the race shrewdly. The rider on bells would probably drop behind and take to the sage. What he did was of little moment to Venters. To stop Jerry Card, his evil hidden career, as well as his present flight, and then to catch the blacks, that was all that concerned Venters. The cattle trail wound for miles and miles down the slope. Venters saw, with a rider's keen vision, ten, fifteen, twenty miles of clear purple sage. There were no oncoming riders or rustlers to aid Card. His only chance to escape lay in abandoning the stolen horses and creeping away in the sage to hide. In ten miles Wrangle could run Black Star and Knight off their feet, and in fifteen he could kill them outright. So Venters held the sorrel in, letting Card make the running. It was a long race that would save the blacks. In a few miles of that swinging canter Wrangle had crept appreciably closer to the three horses. Jerry Card turned again, and when he saw how the sorrel had gained, he put Black Star to a gallop. Knight and Bells, on either side of him, swept into his stride. Venters loosened the rein on Wrangle, and let him break into a gallop. The sorrel saw the horses ahead and wanted to run, but Venters restrained him, and in the gallop he gained more than in the canter. Bells was fast in that gait, but Black Star and Knight had been trained to run. Slowly Wrangle closed the gap down to a quarter of a mile, and crept closer and closer. Jerry Card wheeled once more. Venters distinctly saw the red flash of his red face. This time he looked long. Venters laughed. He knew what passed in Card's mind. The rider was trying to make out what horse it happened to be that thus gained on Jane Witherstein's peerless racers. Wrangle had so long been away from the village that not improbably Jerry had forgotten. Besides, whatever Jerry's qualifications for his fame as the greatest rider of the sage, certain it was that his best point was not far-sightedness. He had not recognized Wrangle. After what must have been a searching gaze, he got his comrade to face about. This action gave Venters amusement. It spoke so surely of the facts that neither Card nor the rustler actually knew their danger. Yet if they kept to the trail, and the last thing such men would do would be to leave it, they were both doomed. This comrade of Card's whirled far around in his saddle, and he even shaded his eyes from the sun. He, too, looked long. Then, all at once, he faced ahead again, and, bending lower in the saddle, began to fling his right arm up and down. That flinging Venters knew to be the lashing of bells. Jerry also became active, and the three racers lengthened out into a run. 
"'Now, Wrangle!' cried Venters. "'Run, you big devil! Run!' Venters laid the reins on Wrangle's neck and dropped the loop over the pommel. The sorrel needed no guiding on that smooth trail. He was surer-footed in a run than at any other fast gait, and his running gave the impression of something devilish. He might now have been actuated by Venter's spirit. Undoubtedly his savage running fitted the mood of his rider. Venter's bent forward swinging with the horse, and gripped his rifle. His eye measured the distance between him and Jerry Card. In less than two miles of running, Bells began to drop behind the blacks, and Wrangle began to overhaul him. Venters anticipated that the rustler would soon take to the sage. Yet he did not. Not improbably he reasoned that the powerful sorrel could more easily overtake Bells in the heavier going outside of the trail. Soon only a few hundred yards lay between Bells and Wrangle. Turning in his saddle, the rustler began to shoot, and the bullets beat up little whiffs of dust. Venters raised his rifle, ready to take snapshots, and waited for favorable opportunity when Bells was out of line with the forward horses. Venters had it in him to kill these men as if they were skunk-bitten coyotes, but also he had restraint enough to keep from shooting one of Jane's beloved Arabians. No great distance was covered, however, before Bells swerved to the left, out of line with Black Star and Knight. Then Venters, aiming high and waiting for the pause between Wrangle's great strides, began to take snapshots at the rustler. The fleeing rider presented a broad target for a rifle, but he was moving swiftly forward and bobbing up and down. Moreover, shooting from Wrangle's back was shooting from a thunderbolt, and added to that was the danger of a low-placed bullet taking effect on Bell's. Yet, despite these considerations, making the shot exceedingly difficult, Venter's confidence, like his implacability, saw a speedy and fatal termination of that rustler's race. On the sixth shot the rustler threw up his arms and took a flying tumble off his horse. He rolled over and over, hunched himself to a half-erect position, fell, and then dragged himself into the sage. As Venters went thundering by, he peered keenly into the sage, but caught no sight of the man. Bells ran a few hundred yards, slowed up, and had stopped when Wrangle passed him. Again Venters began slipping fresh cartridges into the magazine of his rifle, and his hand was so sure and steady that he did not drop a single cartridge. With the eye of a rider and the judgment of a marksman, he had once more measured the distance between him and Jerry Card. Wrangle had gained, bringing him into rifle range. Venters was hard put to it now not to shoot, but thought it better to withhold his fire. Jerry, who, in anticipation of a running fusillade, had huddled himself into a little twisted ball on Blackstar's neck, now surmising that this pursuer would make sure of not wounding one of the blacks, rose to his natural seat in the saddle. In his mind, perhaps, as certainly as in Venters, this moment was the beginning of the real race. Venters leaned forward to put his hand on Wrangle's neck, then backwards to put it on his flank. Under the shaggy, dusty hair trembled and vibrated and rippled a wonderful muscular activity. But Wrangle's flesh was still cold. What a cold-blooded brute, thought Venters, and felt in him a love for the horse he had never given to any other. It would not have been humanly possible for any rider, even though clutched by hate or revenge or a passion to save a loved one or fear of his own life, to be astride the sorrel, to swing with his swing, to see his magnificent stride and hear the rapid thunder of his hoofs, to ride him in that race and not glory in the ride. 
So, with his passion to kill, still keen and unabated, Venters lived out that ride, and drank a rider's sage-sweet cup of wildness to the dregs. When Wrangle's long mane, lashing in the wind, stung Venters in the cheek, the sting added a beat to his flying pulse. He bent a downward glance to try to see Wrangle's actual stride, and saw only twinkling, darting streaks and the white rush of the trail. He watched the sorrel's savage head, pointed level, his mouth still closed and dry, but his nostrils distended as if he were snorting unseen fire. Wrangle was the horse for a race with death. Upon each side Venters saw the sage merged into a sailing, colorless wall. In front sloped the lay of ground, with its purple breadth split by the white trail. The wind, blowing with heavy, steady blast into his face, sickened him with enduring, sweet odor, and filled his ears with a hollow, rushing roar. Then, for the hundredth time, he measured the width of space, separating him from Jerry Card. Wrangle had ceased to gain. The blacks were proving their fleetness. Venters watched Jerry Card, admiring the little rider's horsemanship. He had the incomparable seat of the upland rider, born in the saddle. It struck Venters that Card had changed his position, or the position of the horses. Presently Venters remembered positively that Jerry had been leading Knight on the right-hand side of the trail. The racer was now on the side to the left. No, it was Black Star. But, Venters argued in amaze, Jerry had been mounted on Black Star. Another clearer, keener gaze assured Venters that Black Star was really riderless. Knight now carried Jerry Card. "'He's changed from one to the other,' ejaculated Venters, realizing the astounding feat with unstinted admiration. "'Changed at full speed!' "'Jerry Card, that's what you've done, unless I'm drunk on the smell of sage. "'But I've got to see the trick before I believe it.' Thenceforth, while Wrangle sped on, Venters glued his eyes to the little rider. Jerry Card rode as only he could ride. Of all the daring horsemen of the uplands, Jerry was the one rider fitted to bring out the greatness of the blacks in that long race. He had them on a dead run, but not yet at the last strained and killing pace.' From time to time he glanced backward, as a wise general in retreat, calculating his chances, and the power and speed of pursuers, and the moment for the last desperate burst. No doubt, Card, with his life at stake, gloried in that race, perhaps more wildly than Venters, for he had been born to the sage and the saddle and the wild. He was more than half horse. Not until the last call, the sudden upflashing instinct of self-preservation, would he lose his skill and judgment and nerve and the spirit of that race. Venters seemed to read Jerry's mind. That little crime-stained rider was actually thinking of his horses, husbanding their speed, handling them with knowledge of years, glorying in their beautiful, swift, racing stride, and wanting them to win the race when his own life hung suspended in quivering balance. Again Jerry whirled in his saddle, and the sun flashed red on his face. Turning, he drew Black Star closer and closer toward night, till they ran side by side as one horse. Then Card raised himself in the saddle, slipped out of the stirrups, and, somehow twisting himself, leaped upon Black Star. He did not even lose the swing of the horse. Like a leech he was there in the other saddle, and as the horses separated, his right foot, that had been apparently doubled under him, shot down to catch the stirrup. The grace and dexterity and daring of that rider's act won something more than admiration from Venters. 
For the distance of a mile Jerry rode Black Star, and then changed back to night. But all Jerry's skill, and the running of the blacks, could avail little more against the sorrel. Venters peered far ahead, studying the lay of the land. Straight away for five miles the trail stretched, and then it disappeared in hummocky ground. To the right, some few rods, Venters saw a break in the sage, and this was the rim of Deception Pass. Across the dark cleft gleamed the red of the opposite wall. Venters imagined that the trail went down into the pass somewhere north of those ridges, and he realized that he must and would overtake Jerry Card in this straight course of five miles. Cruelly he struck his spurs into Wrangle's flanks. A light touch of spur was sufficient to make Wrangle plunge. And now, with a ringing, wild snort, he seemed to double up in muscular convulsions, and to shoot forward with an impetus that almost unseated Venters. The sage blurred by, the trail flashed by, and the wind robbed him of breath and hearing. Jerry Card turned once more, and the way he shifted to Black Star showed he had to make his last desperate running. Venters aimed to the side of the trail, and sent a bullet puffing the dust beyond Jerry. Venters hoped to frighten the rider and get him to take to the sage. But Jerry returned the shot, and his ball struck dangerously close in the dust at Wrangle's flying feet. Venters held his fire then, while the rider emptied his revolver. For a mile, with Black Star leaving Knight behind and doing his utmost, Wrangle did not gain. For another mile he gained little, if at all. In the third he caught up with the now galloping Knight, and began to gain rapidly on the other black. Only a hundred yards now stretched between Black Star and Wrangle. The giant sorrel thundered on and on and on. In every yard he gained a foot. He was whistling through his nostrils, wringing wet, flying lather, and as hot as fire. Savage as ever, strong as ever, fast as ever, but each tremendous stride jarred Venters out of the saddle. Wrangle's power and spirit and momentum had begun to run him off his legs. Wrangle's great race was nearly won, and run. Venters seemed to see the expanse before him as a vast, sheeted, purple plain sliding under him. Black Star moved in it as a blur. The rider, Jerry Card, appeared a mere dot, bobbing dimly. Wrangle thundered, own, own, own. Venters felt the increase in quivering, straining shock after every leap. Flecks of foam flew into Venter's eyes, burning him, making him see all the sage as red. But in that red haze he saw, or seemed to see, Black Star suddenly riderless and with broken gait. Wrangle thundered on to change his pace with a violent break. Then Venter's pulled him hard. From run to gallop, gallop to canter, canter to trot, trot to walk, and walk to stop, the great sorrel ended his race. Venter's looked back. Black Star stood riderless in the trail. Jerry Card had taken to the sage. Far up the white trail, night came trotting faithfully down. Venters leaped off, still half-blind, reeling dizzily. In a moment he had recovered sufficiently to have a care for Wrangle. Rapidly he took off the saddle and bridle. The sorrel was reeking, heaving, whistling, shaking. But he had still the strength to stand, and for him Venters had no fears. As Venters ran back to Blackstar, he saw the horse stagger on shaking legs into the sage and go down in a heap. Upon reaching him, Venters removed the saddle and bridle. Blackstar had been killed on his legs, Venters thought. He had no hope for the stricken horse. 
Black Star lay flat, covered with bloody froth, mouth wide, tongue hanging, eyes glaring, and all his beautiful body in convulsions. Unable to stay there to see Jane's favorite racer die, Venters hurried up the trail to meet the other black. On the way he kept a sharp lookout for Jerry Card. Venters imagined the rider would keep well out of range of the rifle, but as he would be lost on the sage without a horse, not improbably he would linger in the vicinity on the chance of getting back one of the blacks. Night soon came trotting up, hot and wet and run out. Venters led him down near the others, and, unsaddling him, let him loose to rest. Knight wearily lay down in the dust and rolled, proving himself not yet spent. Then Venters sat down to rest and think. Whatever the risk, he was compelled to stay where he was, or comparatively near, for the night. The horses must rest and drink. He must find water. He was now seventy miles from Cottonwoods, and, he believed, close to the canyon where the cattle trail must surely turn off and go down into the pass. After a while he rose to survey the valley. He was very near to the ragged edge of a deep canyon into which the trail turned. The ground lay in uneven ridges divided by washes, and these sloped into the canyon. Following the canyon line, he saw where its rim was broken by other intersecting canyons, and farther down, red walls and yellow cliffs, leading toward a deep blue cleft that he made sure was Deception Pass. Walking out a few rods to a promontory, he found where the trail went down. The descent was gradual, along a stone-walled trail, and Venters felt sure that this was the place where Aldring drove cattle into the pass. There was, however, no indication at all that he ever had driven cattle out at this point. Aldring had many holes to his burrow. In searching round in the little hollows, Venters, much to his relief, found water. He composed himself to rest and eat some bread and meat, while he waited for a sufficient time to elapse so that he could safely give the horses a drink. He judged the hour to be somewhere around noon. Wrangle lay down to rest, and night followed suit. So long as they were down, Venters intended to make no move. The longer they rested, the better, and the safer it would be to give them water. By and by he forced himself to go over to where Black Star lay, expecting to find him dead. Instead, he found the racer partially, if not wholly, recovered. There was recognition, even fire, in his big black eyes. Venters was overjoyed. He sat by the black for a long time. Black Star presently labored to his feet with a heave and a groan, shook himself, and snorted for water. Venters repaired to the little pool he had found, filled his sombrero, and gave the racer a drink. Black Star gulped it at one draft, as if it were but a drop, and pushed his nose into the hat and snorted for more. Venters now led Knight down to drink, and after a further time, Black Star also. Then the blacks began to graze. The sorrel had wandered off down the sage between the trail and the canyon. Once or twice he disappeared in little swales. Finally Venters concluded Wrangle had grazed far enough, and taking his lasso, he went to fetch him back. In crossing from one ridge to another, he saw where the horse had made muddy a pool of water. It occurred to Venters then that Wrangle had drunk his fill, and did not seem the worse for it, and might be anything but easy to catch. And, true enough, he could not come within roping reach of the sorrel. He tried for an hour, and gave up in disgust. Wrangle did not seem so wild as simply perverse. In a quandary, Venters returned to the other horses, hoping much, yet doubting more, that when Wrangle had grazed to suit himself, he might be caught. 
As the afternoon wore away, Venter's concern diminished, yet he kept close watch on the blacks and the trail and the sage. There was no telling of what Jerry Card might be capable. Venters suddenly acquiesced to the idea that the rider had been too quick and too shrewd for him. Strangely and doggedly, however, Venters clung to his foreboding of Card's downfall. The wind died away, the red sun topped the far distant western rise of slope, and the long, creeping purple shadows lengthened. The rims of the canyons gleamed crimson, and the deep clefts appeared to belch forth blue smoke. Silence enfolded the scene. It was broken by a horrid, long-drawn scream of a horse and the thudding of heavy hoofs. Venters sprang erect and wheeled south. Along the canyon rim, near the edge, came Wrangle, once more in thundering flight. Venters gasped in amazement. Had the wild sorrel gone mad? His head was high and twisted, in a most singular position for a running horse. Suddenly Venters descried a frog-like shape clinging to Wrangle's neck. Jerry Card. Somehow he had straddled Wrangle and now stuck like a huge burr. But it was his strange position and the sorrel's wild scream that shook Venter's nerves. Wrangle was pounding toward the turn where the trail went down. He plunged onward like a blind horse. More than one of his leaps took him to the very edge of the precipice. Jerry Card was bent forward with his teeth fast in the front of Wrangle's nose. Venter saw it, and there flashed over him a memory of this trick of a few desperate riders. He even thought of one rider who had worn off his teeth in this terrible hold to break or control desperate horses. Wrangle had indeed gone mad. The marvel was what guided him. Was it the half-brute, the more-than-half-horse instinct of Jerry Card? Whatever the mystery, it was true, and in a few more rods Jerry would have the sorrel turning into the trail leading down into the canyon. "'No, Jerry,' whispered Venters, stepping forward and throwing up the rifle. He tried to catch the little humped, frog-like shape over the sights. It was moving too fast. It was too small. Yet Venters shot once, twice, the third time, four times, five, all wasted shots in precious seconds. With a deep-muttered curse, Venters caught Wrangle through the sights and pulled the trigger. Plainly he heard the bullet thud. Wrangle uttered a horrible, strangling sound. In swift death action he whirled, and with one last splendid leap he cleared the canyon rim, and he whirled downward with a little frog-like shape clinging to his neck. There was a pause which seemed never-ending, a shock and an instant silence. Then up rolled a heavy crash, a long roar of sliding rocks dying away in distant echo, then silence unbroken. Wrangle's race was run. End of chapter 17